my name is Ben, by the way. I have the honor of serving as the um, lead pastor here at Downtown Community Church. And I'm thankful that everybody's here this morning. Um, Easter's next Sunday. It's like the Super Bowl of church world. Um, and, uh, hey, in your seat, you've got um, one of these flyers. I know they talked about it, but if you would, go ahead and, and like, get that out and, you, and pick it up um, and shake it above your head. Shake it like a church flyer. Um, <clears throat> very good. So here's what I need you to do with this. Um, if you have not already, make sure you, you um, take this and scan this QR code. And the reason is, and I can't, I can't communicate this strongly enough, the last thing that we want to happen is for people to show up on Easter Sunday and us not have a seat for them. We want to make sure there's a seat for you and your crew, whoever your crew is. If your crew is your friends, your family, the people in your community group, the people that you work with, whoever it is, we want to make sure everyone has a seat on Easter. Um, we have four services. We have our normal 1115, uh, our 915, 11, and 8 p.m. We're adding in an 8 a.m. service. And I would simply say this. If Downtown Community Church is your home church, one of the best ways that you can serve your church is to decide to go to the 8 a.m. or the 8 p.m service. Um, those are the two less convenient service times. Um, actually, 8 p.m. I love 8 p.m. We're going to have an adult Easter egg hunt. I have no clue what's going to be adult about it. Um, <laughs> but we just like, we just call it like an Easter egg hunt. It doesn't sound as cool. It's like an adult Easter egg hunt. So get ready for like a Chick-fil-A gift card or something. Yeah, sweet. <laughs> Thanks, Devin. Appreciate that. <clears throat> um, and also the 8 a.m. service. We're going to have like a sunrise and a sunset service, so to speak. So um, we would love for you to be at both of those if this is your home church again. Um, we know Easter Sunday, disproportionately the Sunday, that more people are going to show up who uh, are on the periphery of church, periphery of faith, kind of interested, maybe investigating, maybe know that they should or they ought to on Easter Sunday. And so we want to make sure there is space um, for people who are investigating and new to church um, on Easter Sunday. So we would love for you to especially attend the 8 a.m. or the 8 p.m. service. So that said, um, let's pray. Jesus, thanks so much for the time that we have together. We pray that we, as we enter into um, a time where we're just learning and reading your words, that you would speak to each one of us, no matter where we are in our walk with you. For those of us who walked in and were new to faith, were new to Jesus, or were reinvestigating it for the first time as a, in a long time as an adult, or the person who has been walking faithfully with you for a long time, we pray that you would speak to each and every single one of us today, and it's in your name we pray, amen. So we're in a series, Take the L, um, Take the Loss if you're over 35, that's what that means. And uh, the idea behind this whole series is that basically it studies the, the uh, losses that the disciples took, the times that the disciples just fumbled, they messed up, they didn't do, or they didn't say what they ought to have said or the right thing, uh, and that we kind of the genesis for this started in uh, New Testament class that I took when I was in college at Florida State. I was a religion major, which I loved, and some people don't like the religion department at Florida State because it challenges your thought. Well, for me, I'm like, that's like, that's like my love language, right? A challenge. And so I loved it. I thought it was phenomenal. I just loved to learn and to hear about other people's thoughts and ideas and worldviews. And at one point, the teacher presented this question, are the disciples, are the disciples faithful followers or fallible failures? Are they faithful followers or are they fallible failures? And there was a visceral reaction this girl had where she was just saying, I don't want to think about the disciples as failures. But the overwhelming evidence of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the accounts of Jesus' life and his interactions with the disciples is that they were. <laughs> and I thought, well, I do. Because that makes me feel way better about myself, you know? 
Because I have failed over and over. And if these group of people who you know, were you know, consistently taking the L could go and change the world, perhaps there's hope for people like me and people like you. But we also live in a culture that doesn't like failure. Like we just push back against it. And oftentimes we have existential crises when we fail. But if you failed often like I have, which I just think is a sign that you're actually trying hard, the more you fail, the more you realize that failure is oftentimes the gateway to learning and understanding and to growth. Some of life's most teachable moments happen on the heels of our greatest failures. And that was true of the disciples. That as Jesus would say, here's this miracle we're about to do, and they would do, say the wrong thing, or, or someone would pull Jesus aside, we're going to read today, and they would say the wrong thing, and Jesus would correct them. Those were some of the most teachable moments that I think the disciples had to have just be this most captive audience. And so today, um, we're going to read and, and kind of get to a place uh, where we're going to talk about this interaction. But before we get there, we're going to kind of go away because there's context matters in this. So let me just kind of lead us into our discussion by asking this question. What would you have to do, what would you have to do for Jesus to call you Satan? Tension in the room, right? Figured. Some of y'all are like, man, this is like five minutes into the sermon. I am not ready to go here yet. I get that. But think about that. Like, what, like, what would you, just if you, like, you don't have to answer it out loud, but just in your, in your mind, in your thoughts. Like, what would you have to do for Jesus to call you Satan? Because about two-thirds of the verses in today, Jesus is going to call Peter, his follower, just that. And I think we're going to be a little bit surprised at why. And I think we're going to be a little bit, you know, maybe misaligned and hopefully come into some alignment by the end of what we're going to learn today. But to get us going in that direction, I want to give you some context. Jesus, Matthew chapter 15 and 16. Jesus has just performed a bunch of miracles. Fed 5,000. He walks on water, Peter walks on the water, Peter falls, you know, all that stuff happens. Um, on, on the heels of that, a number of other uh, miracles had happened. Uh, Jesus heals somebody, um, Jesus, Jesus feeds the 4,000, which is kind of funny to me because the 4,000 feeding came after the 5,000 feeding, which you would think at some point the disciples would have gotten like, we don't need much food to feed these people. Um, but 4,000 people show up and they're like, what are we going to do? He's like, bro, you don't remember? This is ridiculous. So <clears throat> Peter, who's consistently, if you're familiar with the Bible, you know this. If you know, this is kind of new to you, this is be new information. Peter, he was the, he's the person who, he's so out there that you love him, but he's also the person that you're like, stop, you know? <clears throat> Well, Peter actually gets one right in the first section of verses, which I think is going to create the, the really interesting context for what we're going to read today. So in chapter um, 15, <clears throat> I'm sorry, chapter 16, verse 13, um, Jesus asked his disciples a question. Now, verse 13, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? In other words, who do people say that I am? They're just you, you, you know people. Who do they say that I am? And they said, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And each of one of those was based in some historical thoughts and prophecies of the Old Testament before Jesus was around. And he, verse 15, said to them, but who do you say that I am? But who do you say that I am? And this is kind of the central question of Christianity, right? Who do you say that Jesus is? And for many of us, what we've come to the conclusion of is what Peter comes to the conclusion of. Not just that he's God, 
Not just that he's generally someone that we should trust and respect. Not just that he's kind of a wise teacher and we ought to look at some of the thoughts and the ideas. But that he is, in fact, Lord. So this is what Peter says. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ. That's a New Testament word for an Old Testament word called Messiah. In other words, you're the Savior. You're the one who for generations, prophets have been talking about, there's going to come a Messiah, there's going to come a Messiah, there's going to come a Messiah, and he is going to save us from our sins. He is going to restore Israel to its place of military and political prominence. And he's going to set things right again. And we believe, Jesus, that you are him. We believe that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And how we would probably articulate that would be that we believe Jesus saves us from our sinfulness. That innate inside of each one of us, we are naturally sinful. Like nobody had to teach my kids to be selfish, right? They just are. And if you have kids, you know they are. And sometimes it's like, dude, grow up. They're like, I am, you know. <clears throat> but because of our natural and innate sinfulness, or in other words, our natural and innate selfishness, we have all violated the laws of God, and God is holy. God cannot have sin in his presence. And so it oftentimes is, is pushed as the Christian idea is that so now you should just be better people, be more moral people, and perhaps if you're good enough, God will be good with you. But the gospel is the opposite. It's that we can't be good enough people. We can't unsin ourselves. All we can do is accept the fact that when Jesus died for us, his righteousness cloaks us, surrounds us, and his blood covers us, that he paid for the relational rift that was between us and God. Jesus filled that gap. And so we now believe that Jesus is our Messiah, the son of the living God. And he's not just a deity to be acknowledged, but he is a God who has saved, and we now follow. And so Peter says, I believe that you're the son of the living God. So Jesus says to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, which means son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. It's a little play on the whole Father idea. He said, flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Peter, on this thought, Peter, on this declaration, Peter, on this awareness. I am going to build my church. In fact, Peter, you are going to be a foundational piece of that church. And we all know someone like Peter, who this is the worst possible thing you could say to him, right? Like you give him like one pat on the back, like they're like the person who like, like everybody I think probably to a degree struggles with pride. Or maybe I just think everybody does because I do. But this is the person you're like, oh man, that was awesome. They're like, yeah, was awesome you know like he has just messed it up so much I I gotta think that at some point Peter's just like he should just be like finally I got one right like I've said 35 thing wrong things wrong in the last two chapters of this right and there's that's that's only the stuff that got recorded they they weren't even aware of the conversation that happened on the side and Jesus was like Peter come on dude and so he says Peter you're exactly right so Jesus then begins to unpack for his disciples that because he's the Messiah, 
he will suffer and he will die. Because he's the Messiah, he will suffer and he will die. And this actually flew in the face of what they thought the Messiah was going to do and what was going to happen. Picks it up in verse 21. So from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. We're going to talk about that next week, how he was raised from the dead. And it was this thing that no one was expecting, which is pretty miraculous that no one was expecting it. Because over and over, Jesus would say, hey, I'm telling you, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die, and I'm going to raise again. I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, and I'm going to raise again. And Easter morning, after he had suffered, after he had died, they went to the tomb, not because they thought, of the, not because they thought that there um, was going to be a resurrection. They thought there was going to be a body. And no one got to the tomb, and they said, you know, he is risen. Everybody said, indeed. They got to the tomb, and they said, he is risen. They say, where did he go? And so he's explaining this to Peter. And reasonably so for Peter, this flew in the face of what he thought God was and what he thought God would do. This was in contrast to his experience and, frankly, some of his theology. He thought God cannot, I mean, the, the Savior, the Messiah, God die. I mean, that's just, that, 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 categorically, that doesn't even make sense, that God would die, let alone suffer. I mean, I mean Jesus, you must know this. The Messiah, he's going to come, and he's going to rule, and he's going to reign, and his, he will be enthroned, and he's going to lead nations, and, and, and Jesus, come on, you're going to go to Jerusalem, and you're going to get beat up and killed? That doesn't make any sense. So Peter pulls him aside, probably with a little bit too much pride at this point. Verse 22, so Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Which is never a good call, right? We're just going to say that. Like, sometimes we like question, like, Jesus, is that you? Would, should you do that? You know, but he's like, Jesus, let, I, I need to talk to you. Like, I know that you're the Messiah, the Son of God, but remember, I'm the rock. So, you know, basically the same thing. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord. In other words, you're Lord. Like, like this can't happen because you, you're Lord, you're God. Maybe, Jesus, you're, maybe you're having the existential crisis. Maybe who do you think that you are? Let's, you know, look at the actualization of yourself, you know. Let's, like, internally be self-aware. He said, no, you're Lord. This shall never happen to you. Now, what's interesting here is Peter has not done anything egregiously wrong. Right? Like, none of us would look at this in Peter's defense and say, okay, Peter, I can't believe you just said that. Like, the fact that he would rebuke Jesus is kind of, we don't know the tone of that, but maybe it was a bit aggressive. But for Peter, we would look at this and say, yeah, I mean, he frankly just told Jesus, like, Jesus, this doesn't doesn't fit with how I think how you work. This doesn't fit with how, how and who I think you are. And so I'm going to, you know, just gently correct you. And as silly as that might sound, the reason I give all of that context to what Jesus is about to say next is because this is the context that I think many of us find ourselves in. That many of us know Jesus, have followed Jesus, have declared Jesus and say, yes, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. You have saved me from myself and saved me from my sins. But what happens in those moments where God does something that flies in the face of how you think God should do or work? Right? Like, like, like what is it 
There's something inside of us that we believe in God. But as soon as, as soon as something threatens my financial security, I wonder where God is. Right? I lose the job. I'm thinking, God, what happened? What did I do? What, where did this go? Are you there? I mean, I've, and, and reasonably so, right? Because, again, no one would look at Peter and Peter think, Peter, that's outrageous. No one would look at you and think that's outrageous. No one would look at me and think that's outrageous. Because you have a mortgage, and you've got mouths to feed, and people are dependent on you. And I get that. When you get the call and, and someone is sick, and, and, and in fact, it's, it's not just sick, it's, it's incurably sick. And I had a friend who, on Friday, I had the opportunity to just speak for a couple minutes and pray at a, at a fellow, uh, a friend of mine who's, he was 55 years old, found out less than, uh, right at six weeks ago, was feeling great on a Friday, on a Thursday, had a little tummy ache, went to the doctor. It's the thing that you hope here never happens. They do some blood work. They call him back in saying, you need to go to the ER. He's in his living room on a Friday night eating pretzels. They say, you need to go to the ER now. He's like, are you sure? Find out he has liver cancer, and he's got about three weeks to live. And for a couple of those weeks, it's not even going to be a real sense of existence. Right? And, 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 and this happens where what we think and what we want and what we feel and how we think God ought to work flies in the face of what actually happens. And so we question, how can a God exist? God, where are you? God, are you there? God, do I have this whole thing wrong? And no one would look at Peter and think, Peter, I can't believe you do that. But here's what Peter says, or here's what Jesus says to Peter. Verse 23, but he, being Jesus, turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that? You're talking to Jesus and you think you're, being, you think you're doing the right thing. And Jesus looks at you and just says, get behind me, Satan. This is like the ultimate take the L, by the way, Right? But again, on the tail end of this is something so incredibly important because it's so nuanced. He says, you are a hindrance to me or a stumbling block to me. The, the, the imagery behind that is there's like a trap. There's kind of like, you know, if you're trying to catch like a rabbit or something. I don't, I don't know who catches rabbits here, but if you catch, you know, you're from Perry, right? And so you try to catch a rabbit and, and like, there's this little like piece of wood that's like, you know, keeping the, the trap up and they come in to hit the wood and boop, gotcha, right? Easter bunny. So so when that happens, right, this little thing, that's, that's, that's the word picture that he's drawing here. He says, you know, like you are, tr- you are the person that for me right now, you're creating this trap. And he says, you are a hindrance to me or a stumbling block to me for, and this is why, this is the why behind that idea. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. It's this subtle shift. It's this subtle shift that we move from the things of God to the things of man. The things of God to the things of man. Here's what I found to be true. Here's what I think is just the the clearest I can say this. We oftentimes live in a way, in a place, in a context where whether we really want to acknowledge it or not, what we do 
we believe in Jesus for salvation and are deferential towards him in our lives, but still live for ourselves. We believe, we say, Jesus, we believe that you're the Messiah. We believe that you are the son of the living God. We believe that you are God. And so, Jesus, we believe that. We're in that wholeheartedly. That is us. We are with you, God. And, Jesus, I'm going to honor you in some places in my life. But still at the core of our life is ourself. I think this is, if I was to summarize, um, if I was to summarize Southern Christianity, this is it. It's a deference towards God, an acknowledgement of him as Savior, a deference towards God or an honoring of God and respect. I, people made fun of me for using the word deference afterwards. Like, dude, I'm not trying to get a dictionary out. Or whatever. <clears throat> to honor and respect. Um, it's, it's this general sense that I'm going to take off my hat when I pray because I want to honor God, but I, at the same time, just want to live for myself. And I want to have this face service towards God and I think it's really easy for all of us to fall into that in, in, in nuanced ways, right? Because it's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the intention and the motive, and that's always difficult to understand. And so he says, your, your eyes are on yourself, but then he, he unpacks that farther. He says, then Jesus told his disciples, so verse 24, Jesus is talking. He says this further. He says, so if anyone would come after me, if anyone would, would follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And this is the very first time that we have the idea of the cross in the book of Matthew. To this point, you've got to think for the disciples, they don't know the crucifixion is going to happen. And so they're sitting there walking, they're talking. Peter's like, dude, I was just trying to be kind, you know? I was just trying to say, maybe you should think about the fact that you're God and you shouldn't die. Jesus is like, get behind me, Satan. On top of that, if you want to follow me, here's what you need to do. You need to deny yourself. You need to take up your cross. They're like, a cross? That's like a, that's like a torture device in a death chamber. He's like, yeah. That's what it means to be my follower. I think this is interesting. I think this is really, this is, to me, this is just, it's so interesting. And I heard this quote the, the other day that kind of summarizes, I guess, my thoughts about this. It's that God always calls us to carry our cross, and sometimes he calls us to get on it. And it's this idea that I'm constantly living with this awareness that, I've got to, okay, God, if, if at any point my will and your will collide, I'm going to choose your will. If at any point my will and your will collide, I'm going to choose your will. If at any point I think this is what I want and this is what you want, I'm going to choose what you want over what I want, I'm going to actively deny myself. I'm going to be consciously and continuously aware of my preparedness to do that. Here's the thing. And if I was going to say, here's where this flies in the face of who we are, our culture generally speaking, and I hate to say like, oh, culture believes this because it's not a culture war, but our culture generally says the fullness of your life is found in the fullness of the actualization of yourself. That the fullness of your life is directly proportionate to how far and how well you actualize who you internally and who you basically are as a person. And so go live your dream, go do your truth, you'll be yourself. The cultural heroic narrative 50 years ago was of the person who lived on the farm whose family um, was going through difficult times. And so they had this future, they had this career, they had this life trajectory, right? But they denied themselves and they provided for their family. Today's cultural narrative is the heroic narrative is the person who leaves the farm and go fulfills their dream and what their calling is. 
Isn't this true? Isn't this true? We're told that you won't fully live until you're fully you. Until you're fully leaning into and leveraging yourself. And I think there is an innate gifting and wiring and thumbprint of God. And so I think there is some interplay, and it's not as linear as this. But, but I do believe that deep down what happens is we buy into a Christian narrative that says, I am going to believe in you, Jesus. I'm going to honor you in places of my life. But there are going to be specific areas of my life where I'm explicitly living for myself. And in myself, I will not die to myself because that is who I am. And Jesus is saying, that's fine. But you're not going to be a disciple if you do that. Because a disciple is someone who carries their cross. A disciple is someone who's always willing to get on the cross that they carry. In fact, he unpacks it further and says, this is what's at stake, by the way, here. He says, For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So here's the thing, is that in, that in that pursuit of self, in that sense that I'm going to honor myself and be true to myself, and I'm going to do what I want to do, and when I want to do collides with what God wants to do, I'm going to pick what I want to do. Um, when that happens, you think, and I think, and we all think that we're going to find life. But the truth is, is that's when we lose it. This is, man, this, this would save marriages, right? If I know that God's called me as the husband to love and serve and honor my wife. God's called me as the husband to love and serve and honor my wife. And am I perfect at that? No. In fact, you guys are at the women's conference. You're going to hear from my wife as a part of the panel, and she will tell you explicitly, no, he is not perfect at that. But isn't this true? Most of our marriage problems exist because at some point in there, and I put disproportionate weight on the husband's, that at some point the husbands aren't being Christ to their wives. Because what that should look like, what real true biblical leadership looks like, by the way, is that at every pass, I look for the opportunity to put my wife first. At every single opportunity, I look for the opportunity to put my wife first. That's it. That's it. And this whole idea of submission, by the way, gets a terrible rap because the idea behind that is she would just simply allow me to put her first. It's not me saying, it's so jacked up. It's like, oh, make a sandwich. Like, are you kidding me? Name one time Jesus said that. No, he said, I will gladly be poured. Paul said, I will gladly be poured out. Jesus said, even the Son of Man came to die, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And let me just tell you, that takes a dying to self. But we live in a culture that wants to honor God, declare him, generally speaking, as Savior, but then live for ourselves. And he says, man, the problem is, is, is you're going to do that, and, and, and you're going to find that it's really not life in that. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He says, what does it profit a man? Let's just do a, you know, any business majors in here, let's just do a cost-benefit analysis. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? So that's the benefit, but you forfeit your soul. That's the cost. Let's just do a cost-benefit analysis. Benefit, world. Loss, soul. Here's what you find out. You will gain a lot materially and be perpetually empty internally. This is why people who 
have everything are some of the most deeply depressed because they realized they spent their entire life climbing this ladder and they got higher than anybody else. Top 0.001% on planet Earth. And they looked down and they realized this is against the wrong wall. Or what shall man gain in return for his soul? It says, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Um, outside of our house, we, uh, in the middle of the pandemic, decided to, to buy a house. Shout out to interest rates. Um, and we are not... We're, we're plant people insofar as the ones that you can't kill, right? That's about as far as we go. Um, we moved in this house, and it's got this um, grapefruit tree, which I think grapefruits are weird. So I, you, can, you can take all of them, okay? Just 1537 Spruce Ave, okay? So you just take them. They kill my lawn. Um, but on the back part, and I don't know how this happened. It's kind of like in the tree line. It's, it's a little bit weird. Um, but we have this orange tree, and I love some oranges. Um, and, and they're phenomenal oranges. And so um, it, it took a little while. In fact, it, it was like six months. We were like, That's, those are definitely oranges. But who's going to be the first person to try it? That's always the weird part, right? Um, William's little brother. That's the first person who tried it was. Um, and so we were, uh, we were sitting there, and, and I was like, man, this is awesome. So we're trying to eat, eat those. And as I was thinking about this, I was thinking, you know, the, the, the idea behind this is that if someone ever handed me a pack of seeds, what we oftentimes do is say, thank you, I believe you're the seed giver, I believe what you tell me to do is that I need to plant the seed, I need to lose this seed, but in this losing this seed, it's going to grow up to be something incredible and extraordinary, but no, 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 I'm just not sure I trust you in that area, and so I'm going to leave this little pack of seeds on my windowsill, and every day I'm going to walk by and say, wow, that's an incredible pack of seeds. Maybe more times people will give me some more seeds and some more seeds, and then I just have this mammoth warehouse full of seeds, and I'm like, man, look at all these seeds, it's like awesome, what are you doing with it? we get so much more joy <clears throat> even the grapefruits that I don't like we just bowl them <laughs> and I get more joy out of that than I would <laughs> into the yard or into the, the woods anyways I get more joy out of that than I would just looking at a pack of seeds on the windowsill and here's what I think happens to us man like like we know and we acknowledge and we see God but we just leave it at this little pack of seeds on the windowsill instead of looking and saying man God has called this thing to have life and God has called this thing to bear fruit but it's only in the burying and the dying of self do we spring up to what God has called us to be otherwise man we just spend our entire lives going in the wrong direction trying to say God is this life is this life is this life and God's just saying man if you would realize that when you pick up your cross and follow me and you think you're going to lose your life and you're trying to save your life but when you lose your life for me that's when you actually find life the fulfillment of your heart and your soul and by the way you get reconciliation with God in eternity in heaven so let me ask you this one question what's the area of your life where you have a tendency if you're a Jesus follower to be deferential and honoring to God, but living for yourself. <laughs> for some of us, it's like, what's the one area? What's the 500 areas, right? I just ask you, start with one. Start with one. What's the one area that you can be deferential towards God and live for yourself? And would you be willing 
to every day for the next week. Every day for the next week, spend two minutes in prayer, simply praying and saying, God, will you make me aware of the area of my life where I honor you but live for myself? A lot of times I say this whole like one week thing, it's because I frankly don't think that I have that much spirituality inside of me to say like, so for every day for the rest of your life, like that's the goal. But we, can, we got about a week in us. So would you be willing to every day for the next week simply pray? Because it starts with awareness. It starts with me saying, okay, God, this is my starting point. This is my place. This is the place where I know. I don't, they, I don't need any more examples. I don't need any more illustrations. I know this is the place for me that I have a tendency to honor you generally but live for myself individually. And I'll end with this. If you are in here and you're struggling with faith, Christianity, here's what I know. You're all adults. There's a really good, there's a really good chance. The reason why you struggle with faith is because you have seen Christians who did not do this. You've seen Christians over and over who honored God or said they honored God. But when you saw God's will collide with their will, you saw what they wanted to do went out every single time. And reasonably so, you thought, and perhaps you still think, that if that's the only time you're willing to follow someone, to believe someone, is when it's convenient for you. Do you actually believe it? Let me just tell you, I hope, I hope you meet some of the women and the men in this church who do. Some of the women and men who say, God, I am going to, I am going to defer to you, honor you, die to myself, and live for you the times where it's great and the times where it's incredibly difficult. God, I'm going to defer to you in the things that I read in the Bible that I am so thankful are true and the things I wish it didn't say. I'm going to honor you and defer to you the same. My guess if you saw a group of people, a church, who actually lived this, even if you didn't believe, you would at least be convinced that we do. And perhaps that would create a doorway open for you to explore. And I hope that you meet some of those people. In fact, I hope we are an entire church full of those people. But it starts with each one of us simply praying and saying, God, what are the areas in my life that I honor you generally but live for myself individually? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this time that we have together. And I just, uh, I repent, God. I am the chief of all sinners at this. It's so easy to do what Peter did, which is, to think this is just what makes sense. This is what's reasonable. This is, God, who you are, and it seems like who you should be. And then when you do something that, that costs us and causes us to sacrifice, we just intellectually explain it away. Why that doesn't make sense, why that shouldn't be true, why that couldn't be true. Why we shouldn't sacrifice in that way, die to ourselves in that way. But God, would you give us the wisdom to see and the courage to ask a very difficult question. And would you give us the awareness of ourself 
and the intellectual honesty to know what are the areas and what's the area, what's the starting point area, the first area where I honor you in a general sense but live for myself in an individual way. I pray that you would make us into a church of people who every day carries their cross. And whenever you call us to, we get on it. To the denial of ourselves. And I pray as we do that, we would experience what you truly meant for life to be. We would experience, as you say in John 10, life and life abundantly, not because we have this incredible and magnificent life, but because we experience that glorifying you is what life was really all about. I pray that our church would be a church like Isaiah talked about, oaks of righteousness, a display for the splendor of his glory, that that would be true of us. As each one of us for the next week, at some point in the day, spends two, three minutes praying and saying, God, what is the area? What is the area that I can honor you generally and live for myself individually? Would you give me the awareness of what area that is? The wisdom of what area that is? And the courage to die to myself in that area? It's in your name, Jesus, we pray and we ask this. Amen. Hey, we love you guys. Thank you so much for coming to church. Um, we're going to have a prayer team up front. We would love to pray for you about anything we can. Have a wonderful rest of your Sunday.